opinions expressed in this podcast are individual and are not necessarily representative of Spirit Live or Toronto Metropolitan University. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Rock the Boat. It is November 19th, and this is episode 5. On the slate today, I'll dive into the Golden State Warriors' struggles, Tommy DeVito's unlikely performance, and then discuss who the worst team in the NBA is, as there's a number of bottom feeders right now on big losing streaks. Along with those, Walk the Plank and Sink or Swim will of course be back, so stay tuned for that. Alright, up first, I'm heading over to the NBA world as the Golden State Warriors are riding a tough six-game losing streak. Now, any six-game losing streak is bad, The one in which five of the losses came at home is is really tough to swallow, especially when factoring in that throughout the Steph and Steve Kerr, Clay, Draymond era, the Warriors have been a dominant force on their home court. Last year, they were 33-8 with their home crowd behind them. Now, with their most recent loss to the Thunder, they're now 1-6 at home on the season. The team has gone from 6-2 near the top of the conference to now obviously just 6-8, and eight, and the 10 seed in the West just barely hanging on to a playing spot. Now, what's gone wrong for the Warriors? Well, the list is extensive. Their secondary scoring and really just all-around play from people not named Steph Curry has been a real problem for them. Clay seems like a shell of himself. He's averaging just 14 points a game on 520 true shooting percentage. Over the losing streak, Excluding the Minnesota game that he was ejected from less than a minute in, the scoring average is down to 13. He's not playing the same defense he once was. And even, you know, two off-seasons and last full season removed from his injury, he still doesn't have the defensive chops that he once did. He's just, he's not the same guy that he was pre-injury. Andrew Wiggins has been even worse. He's averaging just 12 points per game and has been absolutely abysmal from three shooting just 20% from behind the arc. He did finally break out in their overtime loss to the Thunder as he scored 31 points, five threes, including one with 1.6 seconds left, which at the time seemed to be the game winner until Chet Holmgren hit a wild turnaround triple over Wiggins to send the game to overtime, which they would then lose. But prior to this outburst, he was a combined 2 of 20 from three-point range in their five previous losses. Now, the Warriors quite simply just can't have this continue from either one of those guys if they want to turn this around. Those are the number two and three scoring options on this team, theoretically. And if they keep playing like that and shooting like that, it's just, it's not going to be feasible for the team to win games. Now for the excuses. First up, the schedule. It has admittedly been a real tough six-game stretch for the Warriors in terms of opponents. The streak started with Denver, then moved to Cleveland, followed by back-to-backs against both the Timberwolves and the Thunder. Not an easy path. Nonetheless, 0-6 is obviously unacceptable. Next, Steph was sidelined for two of their losses, which is absolutely killer. Then again, they still went 0-4 with them, so you can't just point at that. Draymond Green has now been out for their last two losses, but again, They were 0-4 with him, and he also did it to himself, going all UFC mode on Rudy Gobert. It has not been 
a pretty couple of weeks for the Warriors. But I'm not selling my stock just yet. This is still a team made up of champions and who began the season looking like real threats in the West. If they do keep losing, however, it'll be more than fair to question their legitimacy and wonder if the core is just too old, save for Steph Curry, who still looks as good as ever, to be honest. They are certainly one of the teams I'll be keeping a keen eye on over the next couple of weeks. Tommy DeVito, hats off to you, brother. I think I can speak for damn near everyone when I say I wasn't familiar with your game like that. Man, was that fun to watch. That is one of the most unexpected, good quarterback performances I really can think of in recent memory. I mean, let me just throw some Tommy DeVito NFL stats prior to Week 11 at you. When he was thrown in against the Jets Week 8, admittedly a tough circumstance, 2 for 7, negative 1 yards. I think all of his passes were screens. Like, they didn't even trust him to throw the ball over the line of scrimmage. The next week against the Raiders, solid completion percentage, you know, 15 for 20, but only 175 yards, two picks to just one touchdown. Last week, again, decent completion percentage. Eh, not great, but 14 for 27, could be worse. Only 86 yards, though. Two touchdowns and an interception. Not great. Then boom, Tommy DeVito against the Commanders in Week 11. 18 of 26, 246 yards, three touchdown passes, no interceptions, leading the Giants to a 31-19 win over their division rivals. He looked like a really legit NFL quarterback. Now, he did take nine sacks and was blessed with field position a few times thanks to three Sam Howell interceptions, but nonetheless, his performance was solid. And sure, some of the sacks were on him, but I mean, his offensive line is probably like bottom three in the NFL, so you really can't blame him for that. And even with the defense's picks, he still had to get the ball in the end zone, which he did three times. I'm not too sure what the odds were on Tommy DeVito three-plus touchdown passes going in, but I'm sure it would have been a pretty solid payout for anyone who found it intriguing. Even if this high for DeVito doesn't last, and he, along with the Giants, revert back to their typical form next week, this is still an unreal story for a New York native who got to not only play for his hometown team, but throw three touchdown passes and lead them to a win over division rival Commanders. He also injected some life into a fan base that, quite honestly, to this point, has experienced a gruelingly disappointing season. So, hats off to you, Tommy DeVito. That was a great performance. I think he's supposed to be back in the starter's position next week, with Tyrod Taylor still sidelined, I believe, until week 14. So, let's see what Tommy can do next week. Maybe he can build on it. Who knows? It is time for Walk the Plank. Up first on Walk the Plank today are the Chicago Bears. The suffering just never ends for Bears fans. I don't know how they do it. It must be so painful. The Bears looked like a real NFL team for 56 minutes of their game against the Detroit Lions. They were taking it to the division leaders and held a commanding 26-14 lead with just four minutes to play. Surely, surely they can, they can get this done, right? Eh, wrong. They can blow it, and they did. Chicago gave up two touchdowns in the final three and a half minutes of the game to lose to the Lions. Unacceptable. 
It really is. And for that, the Bears must walk the plank. Up next, Zach Wilson. Time's up. Time's up. The Zach Wilson experiment in New York, it has to come to an end now. He has been given the benefit of the doubt time and time again, and it's just too much at this this point. The Jets are on a three-game losing streak in which the Wilson-led offense has scored 6, 12, and 6 points. Now this week, he was finally reprimanded for his poor play, being benched for backup Tim Boyle near the end of the third quarter in their 32-6 loss to Buffalo. At the time, he was 7 of 15 for 81 yards, a touchdown and an interception. Wilson's proven he just doesn't have the chops to be a starting NFL quarterback. It's time for the Jets to admit they made a mistake, that he's a bust, and move on. Zach Wilson's walking the plank here, and he very well may be doing so for the Jets as soon as next week, as Robert Salas said he's undecided on who will start moving forward. Now, lastly, on Walk the Plank, we have the Miami Heat. Prior to Saturday night, the Heat were riding a seven-game win streak and had catapulted themselves back into the top of the Eastern Conference. Then they lost to the Chicago Bulls, who at 4-9 were certainly not a great team to lose to, but, you know, stuff like that happens. It's, it's a bad loss, but you can get over it. What doesn't usually happen is losing after taking a 22-1 lead to start the game. Yeah, 22 to 1 against the dysfunctional lowly Bulls and the Heat blew it. Is this the end of the world? No. The Heat'll get over it. They'll keep moving forward. They'll, you know, be a top 5 seed in the East probably. Is this really embarrassing and worthy of them walking the plank? I would most definitely say so. For the most part, I feel like the NBA is at an all-time high in terms of talent and quality. I think there's a lot of very good playoff caliber teams in the league, but there are also a few teams who are quite, I guess, tragic could be a good definition. So I figured I would check out the bottom feeders and decide who is the real worst team in the NBA. Starting with the East, the two worst teams are the Washington Wizards and Detroit Pistons. And they are bad. Really, really bad. The Wizards, 2-10. 1-9 in their last 10, riding a five-game losing streak. Cal Kuzma is actually having quite a good year, but aside from that, there really isn't much to smile about. Jordan Poole was meant to come in and excite the fans, you know, and inject some energy into the team with his flash and occasional offensive outbursts, but those have been few and far between. Instead, he's averaging just 15.5 points per game on laughably poor shooting splits of 39% from the field and 28% from three. Also, it's been reported that now, just 12 games into his Wizards tenure, the fans have already started to turn on him and his diva personality, which has stirred rumors that the front office is looking to offload him, which... Good luck with that contract. I don't think you'll find many suitors. In more player-fan relation talk, Denny Abdia called out Wizards fans for allowing Let's Go Knicks chance to reign throughout their home court in Friday's loss. Their team stats are weirdly not horrible, as their points per game is 12th in the league and defensive rating is 26. I honestly expected worse from the Wizards. Is that, is that bad? I guess that's a pretty big indictment on the team. 
Now below them in the Eastern Conference are the Detroit Pistons. The Pistons are 2-12, and riding an 11-game losing skid, and the makeup of this team is weird. They have a lot of non-shooters. Cade Cunningham has been wildly inefficient. Kevin Knox is their third leading scorer. I'm going to be honest. I thought that guy was playing for the Shanghai Sharks right now. I did not know Kevin Knox was still in the NBA. They are 24th in points per game and tied for 22nd in terms of defensive rating. Asar Thompson, though his shooting is atrocious, has had a great start to his NBA career and is going to only get better as the year goes on. Plus, they have Boyan Bogdanovich returning soon, who will help with some of their spacing issues and provide a much-needed scoring punch. If highest-paid coach in NBA history, Monty Williams, fixes the way he's allocating minutes, meaning no two big lineups and bye-bye Killian Hayes' time on the court, I think the Pistons can improve throughout the year. And to be honest, I don't think their roster is as bad as their record reflects. Therefore, in the East, I think the Wizards are the worst team. In the West, it's between the Trailblazers and the Spurs. The Blazers were always going to be bad this season, and they have been as advertised. Their rookie third overall pick, Scoot Henderson, struggled mightily early, and he's been injured now for a couple weeks, not expected to return for at least another week or two. Jeremy Grant has been solid. Shane Sharp has progressed well in year two, but they're just out of place as top options. Malcolm Brogdon has been pretty good, but he'll likely be offloaded for assets to a contender once the trade deadline closes in. DeAndre Ayton is not dominating, as he claimed in his intro presser. He's actually just mid. He's averaging 12 and 11. They are dead last in the NBA in points per game and just about every other offensive category. They just cannot score the ball. Their defense has been surprisingly good though, with a 112 defensive rating good for 10th in the league. The team, however, is riding a six-game losing streak. They're good for 3-9 and nine overall, which is second worst in the West, just ahead of the San Antonio Spurs. The Spurs started the season 3-2 and two and garnered so much optimism about what was in store for year one of Victor Wembenyama. Then it all came crashing down to earth, and they've now lost eight straight. Wemby has been Absolutely as advertised, averaging nearly 20 and 10 on offense. Inefficient shooting, but still, he's maybe been even better than expected to begin his career offensively. His defense as well immediately made an impact. Players often don't even attempt a shot at the rim if they see him coming. Aside from him, Devin Vassell is having a solid year, but Keldon Johnson has yet to find his rhythm. Also, they're still experimenting with the Jeremy Sohan point guard thing and it is just not working. He's too much of a non-threat shooting and off the dribble to run their offense, not to mention his playmaking is wildly overrated. I'm thinking backup point guard Trey Jones gets a starting gig sooner rather than later and brings a calming presence to the floor. Their points per game is 20th, defensive rating 28th, so absolutely nothing to write home about. Compared to the Blazers, though, honestly, I think they're better and won't finish as the worst team in the West. So that leaves the Trailblazers and the Wizards, and I think that Washington is the worst team in the league. They are dysfunctional, and I just don't see the room for them to improve as the season progresses, whereas maybe with Portland, there's a whole 
Scoot gets a hang of this NBA thing element and makes them a smidge better. So Washington, congratulations. You are my worst team in the NBA. I have a bit of a different type of sink or swim this week as I'm not going to be going through multiple players or teams as I usually do, but rather this one's just going to be sink or swim Kyler Murray edition. Kyler made his return in week 10 from an ACL tear, which had sidelined him since last December. He's now played two games with the Cardinals, and it's taking him some time to get reacquainted with the NFL. Considering he was away from the game for nearly a year, I'm going to go ahead and say he's being solid in his return. He's 1-1. One one. He's thrown for 210 plus yards in both games with completion percentages of 59 and 67. He's got one touchdown pass to two interceptions, but also two touchdowns on the ground. So, is Kyler post-ACL surgery going to sink or swim? I am a believer in Kyler Murray. I think he has the chops to be a good quality starting quarterback in the NFL, and he's proven that when surrounded by good weapons, like in 2021, he can be just that. Now this year, the roster around him stinks, so it'll be tough to put up good numbers, but I'm confident he'll lead them to a couple more wins just by putting the team on his back. In the future, wherever that may be, as, you know, if the Cardinals have a high pick, they may be looking to shop Kyler and take a QB, I think he'll be able to get back to where he was. So, for me, I think Kyler Murray will swim and ascend back up the QB rankings next season to the latter portion of the top 10. That's all I've got for you today. This is Rock the Boat. I am your host, Liam Boatsmith, signing off for now. Tune back in next week for some more sports talk.